I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest this podcast is Helena Morrissey, financier extraordinaire and a woman who's used her power to help other women get to the top. I'm delighted to be able to speak to you. Thanks, Julia. Great to be here. Now, you studied philosophy at Cambridge, but started in the world of finance on a bonds desk. Seems (laughs) a bit of a jump. As a young girl, is that the job you always wanted? You always wanted to be in the finance industry? Absolutely not, actually. I didn't know what I wanted to be or do and um, actually friends of mine at Cambridge thought that I would I should apply to the city that it would be I actually had come from a mathematical background prior to studying philosophy and I did enjoy it and I think when you do enjoy something it tends to make you better at it. I have to say the philosophy degree has perhaps stood me in better stead than you might intuitively think. It's come in quite handy from time to time and the city is not necessarily all cut and dried. There are big puzzles to solve or to think about and yes I think it should be encouraged actually. We don't just want people with economics degrees. So clearly no one ever told you as a girl that girls couldn't do maths. No, actually, I was the only girl in my maths class at school, particularly in the last two years of school uh, when I did the so-called double maths A-levels. And it was a harsh experience. It was, it was tricky. I had two male ta- maths teachers as well. And although there was no one telling me I couldn't do it, I wasn't the best in the class by any stretch of the imagination. But I look upon that experience and sort of finding my way through it as a very informative and important life lesson, actually, not quitting and working out how do I overcome not just technical constraints, as in I was a bit challenged in terms of some of the concepts, but also just having to, yeah, fight my corner. I was the only girl in my physics class in my last year of school and the teacher used to illustrate every principle in physics by reference to a car engine, which didn't do <laughs> that much for me, but apparently helped the boys in the class, but I got through in the end. When you did start in finance, were there any role models, any women in the industry you thought I could be just like her? Well, actually, I started my career in New York. I was hired in London and went straight out to New York. And it was a very small office. I was working for Schroeder's, a big London-based firm. And in the New York office, there were two women and two men who were basically running the show. The two men were managing the money and the two women were running the business development. But actually, if I'm honest, they called the shots. And it gave me a very false impression, I have to say, 
of what it was like being a woman in finance because these two women seemed to sort of really control their own destiny, enjoy their life, make up their minds what they were going to do and didn't seem to be in any kind of minority just because it was a small office and there were, there were two of them. But I came back to London and quickly found that was not entirely the case everywhere. I was the only woman then in a team of 16 fixed income bond fund managers. Uh, so it was you know, back to earth with a bump really. And do you think looking at that comparative experience, was that just about the fact it was a small office or was that something different in the United States compared to the UK at the time? Well, I think at the time, America, was uh, certainly New York, was far ahead of where we were in London. And I think perhaps we have, I dare say, leapfrogged a little bit. I'll go back to New York and there's still some very high profile, you know, very powerful women, but they are few and far between. Whereas I think in the UK, where perhaps we were starting from a long way behind, there's a realisation that actually this is the whole gender equality issue isn't just about a few women at the top. It is about trying to make sure we have proper gender equality, um, more opportunity for lots of women from lots of different backgrounds and not necessarily getting to the top, fulfilling their potential. And you in your journey, you've been at senior levels in businesses. You're in a very senior level in a business now. You've also been the CEO. In all of that... How have you been able to use being at the top or being the CEO to change the culture, to change the prospects for other women? Well, actually, when I first became Chief Executive of Newton Investment Management, a position I held for 15 years, I very much, I'm slightly embarrassed a minute, but I very much focused on just proving that I could do the job. And it was only as young women came up to me, and I had suffered some discrimination early on in my career, and they were asking for advice, particularly around combining family and career that I realised I really wanted to help, and I wanted to help more than just the one or two women that would approach me directly. And I didn't really have, if I'm honest, the real power in the industry. I was still very much, I feel, proving myself in that CEO position. But actually, by creating allies, not just in the investment or the finance industry, but beyond, I was able to sort of tap into broader power base, um, particularly chairman of big British businesses. And that was all the genesis of the 30% Club, really. And of course, the 30% Club is about getting more women on corporate boards, but also more women into senior management. And I do want to come to that. But before we do, can you summarise for us what was the sense of discrimination you encountered early in your career? Were there days when you thought this is being much harder for me than it should just because I'm a woman? Definitely. I mean, there was the general, I mean, we're talking about 30 years ago now, banter, as we might put it here in the Britain, where there's sort of ribaldry and, you know, jokes that would be embarrassing or crude at the desk. But a more overt occurrence happened when I had my first child. I was 25 years old. I got back from maternity leave and it was just at the moment when I was eligible for the first promotion. And this was not supposed to be a big deal. This was like first rung on the ladder, not being graduate trainee anymore. And I had been the one chosen out of all the graduates to go off to New York for this two-year secondment and supposedly had a great sort of future ahead of me. And I was passed over for promotion. And when I asked what areas of my performance did I need to improve, my boss, obviously a man because I was only working with men, said, oh, there's nothing wrong with your performance, but there is some doubt over your commitment with a baby. <sighs> No one would say that now, but they might think it. And at least I knew where I stood. I was shocked, to be honest. I was not expecting that. I had gone to a co-educational state school. I had sort of one of two daughters brought up by teachers. You know, I had never thought that my gender would have anything to do with how far I could progress. And it made me really, I mean, I'll be honest, bewildered to start with. I was thinking, well, what can I do about that? There's not much I can do about my gender and about being a mother. 
But it was a very important milestone because, again, it gave me real resolve to try to help other women not to have that same experience and also, frankly, to find a culture. There was one other woman who was very much more senior than me, but we were sort of not really friends and it was only one out of a whole company, big company of hundreds of people. I just knew I had to leave and find a culture which was more conducive to, to my thriving, a, a real meritocracy. I do want to ask you about combining work and family life because you've had this and continue to have a stellar career in financing and you're the mother of nine children. Now, I just want to reinforce for the listeners, I haven't got that number wrong. The number is nine children. I can imagine women in particular listening to this podcast who have wrestled that morning to get a two-year-old and a five-year-old ready and the cat's been sick on the carpet and everything's gone wrong, who are probably saying that's impossible. How on earth did you do it? Well, there have been lots of mornings like that. Um, And I suppose it sounds so trite, really, but I have learnt by taking... I used to panic much more about lots of things and feel overwhelmed. And I learnt that actually by sort of taking things one step at a time, much easier said than done, but really trying to fight the natural tendency that I think we have to sort of try to overthink, you know, the next step and the next step and how am I going to cope? And we use a lot of negative energy, I think, on just all the things that might go wrong rather than sort of dealing in the here and the now. So that has helped. And I guess also the reality is that I have a stay-at-home husband. Uh, Not always the case. We had our fourth child before he became a stay-at-home father and husband. And that has made, obviously, a huge difference. And one of my hopes, I suppose, is that the world of work will become, the world of family life um, will become much more interchangeable for men and women and that it's not so unusual, not necessarily completely quitting your job, but you know, sharing in family as well as work. And for him, uh, deciding to take the stay-at-home parent role, were there stereotypes that he found hard? I mean, that would have been very unusual. I mean, it's still unusual today, but even more unusual when you first jointly took that decision. How does he remember those days? Well, he always, and he won't mind me saying this, you know, felt very confident in his masculinity, you know, and he was quite happy to, in one sense. But he hated being asked, you know, school gates or dinner parties or just casual conversation, oh, what is it that you do? Because it would floor people. The answer, oh, actually, I'm staying at home, bringing up the children. People would sort of shuffle and look embarrassed and, you know, move away. And they didn't know how to sort of pigeonhole him, which shows us something about us human beings. We don't really need to pigeonhole people, do we? We can have a conversation, get to know them. And he's also very intellectual. You know, he got a first-class degree in philosophy, and law degree, and so that has been, I think, a slight frustration for him. But he says he loves what he does, and I think he has done something really amazing. You know, we have nine mostly happy, most of the time, children. <laughs> and, you know, that is a very big thing to have done, and I think he feels genuinely proud, and he should do, of having done that. He certainly should, as both of you should, and it is really important for us to be talking about ending stereotypes from all dimensions, and it's a really good reminder that we can categorise people in all sorts of ways that create barriers. For you, it does mean you're in a really interesting position to be able to look back to how the world of work and family intersected more than 20 years ago when you had your first child and how it's intersected for you when you had your last child, which I understand would be around about 10 years ago. Do you think it's got a hell of a lot better? 
I wouldn't say a hell of a lot. I think that there's obviously more, you know, in theory, there's more support and more processes and uh, policies that would allow more flexibility, for example. And certainly, I mean, when I had Fitz, my eldest, who actually is 27 now, I mean, obviously there was no internet. I mean, can we imagine such a thing? (laughs) And um, of course, that meant you were completely cut off and, you know, there was absolutely no way to stay in touch. I remember the I would get a big pack of investment papers through the letterbox once a week, you know, when I was off on maternity leave. But when I had B, who's 10, I mean, I could just, there was, there was a resignation in the office, and I could just jump in a cab and take her with me and then come back, and it was sort of expected and people didn't really bat an eyelid. However, I think attitudes have been much slower to change, and I think there's still, there's a lot of curiosity, maybe because I have so many children, but I think there's still quite a lot of judgments People sort of still write articles on, you know, working mothers are the sort of, you know, source of all sorts of terrible things that happen to children and um, a very unhelpful insinuation perhaps that, you know, there's a certain role that women should take and another role that men should. I think that's unhelpful for both. I think men often feel very straightjacketed by societal expectations. Last year, in my capacity as chair of Business in the Community's gender equality campaign, and Business in the Community is part of the Prince of Wales, or is the Prince of Wales responsible business network. We did this big survey of uh, 10,000 people, mainly men, with caring responsibilities. And it was really quite upsetting in some ways, understanding that men, I mean, nine out of 10 of them said they felt they should play as a bigger part in childcare as their wives. But the majority, two thirds of men with caring responsibilities, not necessarily children, sometimes elderly parents, said they hid it from their employers because they didn't feel that it was compatible with career progression or job security. And that is a real indictment, I think. That is a very depressing finding, isn't it? And I suspect they're feeling the additional burden that people kind of expect women to come to the office and say, I need time off for the kids or I need time off because mum's getting older or whatever, but that somehow a man's going to be viewed you know, lesser or differently for making the same requests. Definitely. And I think, I mean, there are a few examples of employers where they've made it, you know, very equal terms, say, for example, around paternity leave or maternity leave. But it's still, that's still the exception. So people haven't got used to having seen role models necessarily. And I think people do question men's commitment, just as my commitment was questioned over 20 years ago. And it becomes something that men have to explain that shouldn't really be the case. Families and other parts of life are and should be intertwined with our working lives. We're not also making that much use of technology, I think. We, we are all addicted to our phones and we kind of check in our emails all the time, but really enabling us to live more balanced lives and not you know, commuting long distances and so forth, that's still, I think, not really taken advantage of. Which does bring us to the sort of change agenda for business of which you've been Mm. so much a part. So you were the founder of the 30% Club, trying to see 30% of board positions and senior management positions go to women. What's the case for it? Why should there be more women on corporate boards? Why does it matter? Well, actually, the 30% Club was born out of the financial crisis in lots of ways. And that was an obvious example where just having one type of person on a board, and there I don't just mean men, but I mean men often who moved in very similar social circles, who'd you know, spent years together in, the, in whatever field it was, white men, middle class men, very homogenous in all dimensions really. Clearly no one could turn around and say, well this, perf- this is a perfect team. You know, there was a lack of challenge, too much groupthink, and that was a moment to seize and it made the business case, which I'm still being asked about today and yet 
there is no business case for just one type of person running things. <laughs> it's true. But it made the business case for having more diversity of thought, I think, very loudly and clearly. And that was an opportunity to, first of all, I mean, I don't think having more women on boards is a panacea for all ills at all, but it was such an obvious place to start that we had 12.5% women on FTSE UK 100, the top 100 companies boards at the time. And, you know, that was obviously a tiny fraction of the pool of talented women that could serve on boards and make a contribution and perhaps approach problems in a bit of a different way. And so that's a kind of burning platform analysis, really, isn't there, that there was more preparedness to change because there had been a big problem. Can you imagine a world in which the global financial crisis hadn't happened? Do you think the agenda about women on boards would have been viewed a little more sceptically or viewed as a bit of eccentric without the sort of burning platform moment? Well, actually, I think, I mean, it's a great question because I think in this country we had evidence, I mean, nothing had much changed from, for many years before. If one looks at the sort of line graph of positions held by women on boards in this country, then it had moved at a very glacial pace, um, you know, sort of ticked up 0.1% each year. And many attempts have been made. I mean, people have written books and mentored women and, you know, had a sort of search firms, particularly target women and all of this, and nothing much had changed. So I do think there are times when we have to recognise there are particular moments and make the most of them. And I also recognise then that many of us, I mean, in the early 2000s, myself included, many companies have set up women's networks. And that had seemed to be oh, the solution to having more women, particularly in senior positions, or more women fulfilling their potential. And yet reality was that you know women talking to women about women's issues wasn't really going to solve the problem. We needed those in power, mainly men, to say, actually, we need you to join us to make our groups better, our businesses better. And that case really, I'm not saying it couldn't be made, but it would be a much less compelling and much less motivational as it turned out to be, you know, People realize that they had a problem. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And needed diversity as a solution rather than the other way around that people complaining about lack of women in positions was a problem. So that, yeah, I feel we did make the most of that, <laughs> shamelessly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and for good. <laughs> and your model with the 30% Club has been an interesting one because I think you're right that the conversations have to be with the people who've got the change levers, the power levers in their hands, and yes, they're still disproportionately men. So one of the things that has enabled the 30% Club to make change is you went right to the chair of the board level can you just explain how you, you came to the decision that that was the right access point that you needed to be talking to the top rather than perhaps agitating externally or asking a government to regulate, which would have been potential solutions too? Yes, I mean, again, in Britain, there's a big comply or explain, a bit like the Australian, if not, why not, corporate governance culture. And I think having legislation around the issue has always been something that I think might have backfired 
and actually being counterproductive for women generally. Whereas what I was trying to do along with colleagues was realise that actually the boardroom was a place we were trying to change. It needed to be the people who had the power to change those boardrooms. And that is the chairman. And at the time 30% Club launched in 2010 in the UK, 99 out of the 100 FTSE chairmen were men. And that one woman, Dame Alison Carmouth, was very supportive and that was lovely, but it wasn't going to be enough. <laughs> so, no. And the approach, I mean, I also had lots of failed attempts along the way. So now it looks, when we got through 30% last year, it now looks good success story, but actually there were a lot of backward steps and again, learn a lot about affecting change. So for example, although I had a few enlightened seven initial chairman supporters, the majority were not supportive and actually still regarded this, notwithstanding the financial crisis, notwithstanding other pressure points, as a women's issue, not a business issue. And what I learned from getting very uh, hostile responses was actually m me berating them or encouraging them perhaps, as I was trying to do to, to sign up to this and actually campaign and try to help was not going to work and actually I needed to use those seven founding chairs as our very high-octane recruitment board, and they went out and very effectively, partly because they were very competitive with each other, which I had underestimated, but, you know, that was great. They were all very competitive to point the most women on their boards, the best women on their boards, and to outdo each other in terms of how many men they could recruit to the cause. So they became a very, um, very effective, and actually one of them, Sawin Bischoff, who was at the time chair of Lloyd's Banking Group, we both won some award in New York a few years later and he stood on the stage and he said, well, he said, it worked wonderfully. Helena got us to do her work, you know, which is sort of <laughs> exactly. partly true. You know, um, it was a double act because I would, you know, be behind the scenes a little bit. But it was a, it showed as well when the men were saying this is actually part of modern business culture. Everyone expects us to have a variety of, of backgrounds, genders, opinions on the board. We can't just recruit our best friends then suddenly the penny dropped. And um, I've seen that in other situations too. When people see it in their own interests, then they will firmly get behind the initiative. And so can you share with us, uh, probably naming no names, but can you share with us two or three of the uh, silliest responses you got when you went door knocking chairman and saying you really should do something about your business? You're one of the 99 men who chairs a FTSE 100 company. Well, my favourite slash least favourite, uh, depending on how you look at it, was a guy who face to face shouted at me and told me I was going to destroy British business. Oh, I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure how I could do that, really. And actually, this guy, one of the n nice founding chairmen, had told me that he was quite a warm prospect, but he thought a conversation with me might help. So I went and literally he pilloried every woman that I could mention who might be actually a sensible candidate for a, a board position. We, we finally alighted, I think, on one woman somewhere that he didn't regard as a complete speck of dust. You know? <laughs> um, the, the reality, the, the honest problem with this is that that guy, although he's not a FTSE chairman anymore, he still has a senior role in another sort of institution. And I, I somehow doubt he's completely changed his tune. But it was really odd. It was a really odd response. And most of the others were a little bit misunderstanding. A lot of people thought this is a call for a quota. Even though I wrote letters saying, this is not a call for a quota, they would write back saying, I'm totally against quotas. So a lot of the time I was a bit despondent because I didn't even read. And then there was a few people who were saying, well, actually, which is a more interesting topic perhaps to discuss, that I'm not really into just gender. I want to have better ethnicity and, you know, better age range on the boards. And so I don't really want to put all my 
you know, eggs in this basket, and I don't want to say that gender is particularly special. And the trouble is, of course, at the time, nothing then got done, mm. because it wasn't as if there was a other campaign to create diversity in other dimensions. I think it's a very important point to address diversity and inclusion holistically, and there was a time and a place, I think, to focus almost entirely on the women thing, because that was such an obvious gap, but... Nowadays, I think we should be looking much more across all dimensions. We can't fix the women thing and then say, well, now we're going to work out what we do about ethnic minorities. No, no, there's, it's, you've got to take that full approach and that mm. sort of intersectional approach. But you do wonder, the cynic in me sometimes wonders how much these questions are raised as a blocker to change rather than an enabler of greater change. Exactly. I mean, I think that is, you've hit the nail on the head. There was one lovely example, just if I may share, where a guy had said, no, I'm not absolutely, this is a women's issue, it's not a business issue. And then six months later, when we were talking about something completely different, he said, actually, you know, I would like to join that 30% club thing. And I said, oh, what persuaded you to change your mind? And he regaled me very generously, really, because he needn't have shared an experience where his board, a real estate company, was about to sign a big joint venture with a Chinese company. They had the quill pens ready and were all puffed up, ready to sign. And the one woman on the board sort of tentatively, nervously raised her hand and said, you know, I think there's a risk around how we structured this. And he said they were all very cross with her because they really wanted to sign. But she was right, he said. And he realised she nearly didn't speak up because she was the only woman. And the reason why she had spotted it was because she wasn't sort of in the group. So he came around to it from seeing it with his own eyes, which was pretty powerful. That's a fantastic story. Uh, well, I knew I was talking to a powerful woman, but I didn't know I was talking to the woman with the power to wreck all of British business. Well, That's a revelation yeah, to me. There's others trying to do that. <laughs> minute, but. Uh, why not the 50% club? So that's a good challenge. I mean, you could argue that it wasn't ambitious enough. At 12.5%, 30 seemed long enough away. But also, I'd been reading a lot about, you know, organisational behaviour. I'm obviously not a neuroscientist or a behavioural scientist, but it did resonate with me that if you're one of three out of ten, you're part of a, you know, the, the team, whereas if you're a token woman, then perhaps you might hold back or think of yourself as, or be treated as the token woman. And that certainly chimed with my own experience. But now that we're through 30, people challenge me and say, well, now you have to up it. Of course, we're not through 30% on other parts of, you know, like there aren't 30% CEOs or 30% CFOs or women in the C-suite at all. So one can argue that the job isn't finished. But I would rather, in all honesty, that the 30% club self-destruct because it's not needed anymore. And, you know, that we all just get about our lives with a wonderful gender balance. And um, it's maybe a naive, forlorn hope, but that would be my preferred goal than to keep just upping the ante. So you think <laughs> once we're above 30%, there's something sort of self-sustaining about it that we'll get the rest? I hope so. I mean, I think certainly what we've seen is, you know, the arguments we made that if it improves the dynamic around decision-making in the boardroom, you should have more women in all levels. And there is obviously... And thankfully now, for the first time in the last couple of years, this um, association with ways of working and actually gender equality more generally. So I, I don't think we can sort of completely chill out about the whole thing. We do have to keep an eye on it and make sure people don't think, oh, we've been there, done that. But I think it can be a bit irritating to have people reach the goal and then say, oh, well, thanks very much. Here's another goal now, particularly when they've done it in a very voluntary way. Which is, and we've moved from 153 out of the top 350 companies in the UK having no women on their boards at all to only two. 
That's fantastic. So those two have to uh, pick up their act, though, don't they? <laughs> I would hope that now feel their pre the pressures. <laughs> <laughs> now, you authored a book, A Good Time to Be a Girl. Why is it a good time to be a girl? Well, my optimism partly springs from advances I've seen in my own career over 30 years, because I do think it's a much better time. But I also do feel we're on the verge, although I'm not complacent, of a really bigger breakthrough for gender equality, which does involve addressing the male side of the equation as well. I do see, particularly in young people, obviously I have enough of a sample size in my own family <laughs> to some extent, but also, you know, I speak lots of universities, lots of schools. I've gone and spoken on gender equality, for example, at Oxford University, and, you know, when I arrived, there were more men in the room than women, and I was like, oh, maybe they think I'm here to talk about something different. And I've asked, you know, a young male student, do you know what I'm here to talk about? And he said, oh, yes, gender equality. I'm hoping my girlfriend comes along too, but I think it's a very important topic. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily the mainstream sense among established, you know, sort of middle-aged people, but I think young generation expects a different environment, they expect a different life, they expect, someone told me, an odyssey, not just a career. I think that's wonderful, and I think we need to aim bigger. I think we, rather than just squeeze a few women into male and not really necessarily suiting any men now, but, you know, old-fashioned ways of working before we had technology, before we had any thought about work-life balance. I think we need to rethink the whole of work to suit men and women. So an odyssey not only on gender equality but the future of work. We could do things very differently. I think it's time to change things more, you know, from top to bottom rather than just, as I say, sort of tweaks around the edges, you know, move from diversity initiatives to... Yeah, actually, if you're going to have a war for talent, as people are always talking about, we have so many pressures, whether it's artificial intelligence or, you know, the creative spark that's needed in companies now is going to require diversity of thought. And I think this is a real, like the financial crisis was for women on boards, but this is a bigger, broader moment to seize now. Good news to hear about a bigger, broader moment. And I think that is going to bring us to the big questions that we okay. ask each guest, the big questions. So first of our big questions, here's a fact. Is it a fun fact? I'll let you decide. A research by Grant Thornton has found that the proportion of senior management roles held by women globally is the same as it was more than a decade ago. Now, the 30% club is active here in the UK and in a number of other countries, but not in every country. And this is a global statistic. Mm. Uh, but what's your reaction to that? Well, it doesn't surprise me, notwithstanding my optimism I do, and pride over some of the progress that has been made, and not just by me, by lots of people working so hard on this issue. Clearly, globally, we have a lot of challenges. Obviously, FGM, female genital mutilation is a very big problem, as does obviously hugely disadvantage women on so many levels in so many countries. And there are many, many countries where you, there's clearly been no progress whatsoever in this last decade. And that's why, I mean, obviously the UN has its, you know, sustainable development goal number five. It should be tackled as a global issue. It is a massive problem, I think, for the world, for economically and socially. And as I say, I think we've been sort of scratching around the surface, scratching on the surface and having a few pockets of improvement and not really made the big breakthrough that we could. Mm. Uh, that's a challenge for all of us. Uh, you've talked about the reaction to your first pregnancy and mm. the detriment that that meant to your career, that they thought you weren't committed to it, um, more for them all these years later. But anyway, but can you point to any other examples, you know, the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? Mm. 
Well, uh, there have been other examples, including more recently. I mean, somebody said in my own um, industry a couple of years ago to me when we were having a chat, he said, oh, I don't know why you bother with all this women's stuff. You women have never had it so good. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thanks. You know, we, we certainly, on a personal level, there have been examples where basically people have been incredibly patronising, including, you know, right up to this very minute, really. People, it doesn't seem to matter what, and, and I'd be interested to know, Julia, if you ever, as former Prime Minister, encountered this or whether you've reached another sort of class now. But, you know, people will say, um, well, let me explain it to you. <laughs> or, um, well, what you don't understand. Or my favourite, well, with all due respect, mm. you know. And, you know, that usually is prefaced to, well, you have no idea what you're talking about. And that does unfortunately happen, I would say, actually every week still in the finance industry. I do feel that that is one of the most challenged sectors still. There's been a sense of, you know, signing, you know, the Women in Finance Charter is a great thing. I'm not in any way saying it's not been worth doing, but there are 300 companies signed up to that and lots of stories every week of cultural behavioural problems. Now, people might think this is not the be-all and end-all. This is not, I'm not equating it with being a real victim and having awful sexual harassment and so forth, but it does chip away. Mm. Oh, no, it does chip away. (laughs) And um, even as a Prime Minister, I would have, uh, you know, the business person explaining the big mining project or something like that who felt the need to say, we're going to use the language of net present value, that means, (laughs) and you're like been in public policy a long, long time. I studied economics at university, like I'm keeping up, thanks very much, you know. But you never wanted to cause the meeting to break down, so you'd try and often, you know, lace that with a little bit of humour or something like that to get everybody through the moment. But in some senses, why does it lie on us to cajole and joke people through when they've done something so Mm. ridiculous? No, and I try never to be militant about it. I mean, once or twice I've sort of lost my temper when someone has been so obviously undermining me in front of lots of people who I really shouldn't be undermined in front of, you know, when I've been chair of the meeting and, you know, it sort of felt the way they're behaving means that I could potentially completely lose control of the group if they'd all took his word seriously, but they tend not to. But it is usually better, I think, to either with humour or just gently point out, actually, you know, yes, I do know what you're talking about, or particularly if it happens to another woman. I mean, I always feel the need to speak up on her behalf, and just whether it's in the meeting or afterwards, just make sure that the perpetrator sort of doesn't do it again. Because often they put their head in their hands, they say, I'm really sorry, I didn't really realise. Now, it's not an excuse, but we are in the midst of great change, and, you know, it's hard for people who've sort of had all their careers behaving in a certain way to suddenly behave differently in every situation. So I would like to err on the side of generosity around how one responds to this, but just every now and again I see red, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen red a few times in my career. (laughs) Uh, Now, if you had absolute power, maybe you you were the leader of the world that we'd take that alien to if it landed from outer space and asked to see the leader, what would you change for women? So I'm very conscious that I've been very lucky in my home life to have my husband not just playing, you know, his share of it, but actually doing more than his share in many cases, many days of the domestic side. And I think a lot of women are really physically exhausted and ground down by the need to be, you know, pretty much full-time career and full-time wife and mother. And I would love to see just men expecting to play a bigger part in the home life as well. And if I could wave a magic wand and have it sort of 50-50 in the home, I think that would make a lot of women's lives better. 
I think that would be a very popular pick. <laughs> uh, now, Virginia says, uh, literature is strewn with the wreckage of those who have minded beyond reason the opinion of others. Helena says? Helena says, um, I actually think that we need people to be able to withstand sort of reputational risks, uh, which I think is what she's getting at there, to mind beyond reason the opinion of others, um, if we're going to see progress. I think a lot of progress depends on being a bit unreasonable and being able to withstand, sometimes at personal cost, you know, the sense of um, actually you shouldn't be doing that. It's not your calling. But if you really, I'm often asked, well, why do you bother? And it's because I do care and sometimes it might be at a bit of a personal cost, but I'm happy to do that if it changes the future for some women, hopefully more than just a few. <laughs> No better note to finish on, Dame Helena Morrissey. Thank you very much for a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Julia. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online, and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider and come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Mm -hmm.